We are in Philemon this morning, chapter 1, of course, there's only one chapter, working our way through this important epistle, considering what the Lord has for us. And I've entitled my sermon this morning, I don't typically give many titles to things, but as I was working through this this past week, I was considering these things, and I thought to myself, why Philemon? Of all the things that could have been written, why Philemon? This is really unique in the canon of Scripture. There really isn't anything else like it. A personal letter to a friend about a very difficult and challenging situation. And Paul, of course, is concerned about Philemon. He's concerned about Onesimus. They're both, as he would refer to them, brothers in the Lord. He refers to Onesimus as his child. So there's a really tight bond, and we're going to be looking at that this morning in greater detail. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. Thank you for um, the occasion to open up your word and to examine it and to receive instruction and exhortation and direction, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for the overwhelming nature of our salvation. Thank you for giving us the ability to do the things that we're called to do by your grace, you have equipped us, you've um, filled us with your spirit, you have given us a sense of greater things in Christ, and our prayer this morning is that we would see that and recognize it, and more, most importantly, truly rest in him alone, by faith alone. We trust, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your spirit this morning, give us uh, direction, protect us from the evil one, and pray, Lord, that our hearts would be changed as we examine your word to us today in this little epistle of Philemon. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, let's read then this little epistle. It's worthy of our consideration each time. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you, and he's referring to Philemon, and this is very personal, so we don't want to forget that, but it's also, it's also corporate in that he's dealing with this issue of the problem between Philemon and Onesimus in an open way. He's wanting the church to learn something from this tension and conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. We know that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon who ran away and stole from him and by God's providence ended up in Rome and somehow met Paul and God saved him and then he goes back to Colossae and delivers this epistle, the Colossians epistle, of course, the letter to the Colossian church, and then this little letter and likely carried with him uh, Ephesians and perhaps some others. So this is significant. Verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, as I noted, Philemon really does stand in stark contrast to the canon of Scripture, the other books of the Bible. There really isn't anything like it. This little epistle um, is often misunderstood and even today is infrequently preached and castigated by some because they don't like the topic, they don't like the issue that is being dealt with here, and they find it to be offensive to our modern sensibilities and sensitivities, and as such, we need to ignore it. It really doesn't have any modern-day application because, well, no one has a runaway slave, so how can it be relevant to a church at this point in history in the United States? And so it's often ignored. But we risk great peril to ourselves and to our souls by ignoring this little epistle because I find it to be quite compelling, and I think it's really quite unique. And what I find in Philemon is ultimately the application of Colossians. Philemon is just Colossians in action. If you want to know why Philemon is there, that is what I believe to be the case. So Paul is taking those Um, uh, imperatives, that doctrine too that was taught in Colossians, and in particular what we find in Colossians chapter 3 beginning with verse 10 and moving through verse 17 to be applied to the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. And so what we ultimately have then is a manifestation, a picture if you will, of what Paul thinks and would imagine the people doing as it relates to living the reality of the transformation that's brought about by the gospel. That's what I believe to be happening here. If we go back to Colossians, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. And we can see then that how Paul would expect that Philemon and Onesimus and the rest of the church to act in accordance with what he had already taught or was taught, teaching them at the very same time. As we recall, in verse 10, he reminds them that they put on the new self, the new man who is given to us by the Lord. This is part of our regeneration. 
It says this person, this new man that's been created in us is being renewed to a true knowledge, a full knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, which is who? Jesus Christ. So we're growing into understanding who Jesus Christ is and, and, and manifesting that in our behavior and our conduct and our attitudes, which is demonstrated dramatically in verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. That's significant because it makes direct application to what's going on with, of course, Philemon and Onesimus. He wants the two of them to know, of course, that they are equal in the eyes of God. They may not be equal in the context of the culture in which they live, but they are equal in Christ's eyes. The Christ is all in it and all. Then verse 12, so. And so he is basically saying to Philemon, so Philemon, since you have been chosen of God and you are holy and beloved, I would anticipate as the reality of your salvation that you are going to have a heart of compassion that you are going to act in kindness and humility and gentleness and be patient. You're going to forbear with Onesimus, and you're going to forgive him because if anyone has a complaint against each other, you're going to do exactly what Jesus Christ did with you, and that is to forgive him. He would remind him of this, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He even will appeal to Philemon on that basis, as we will see. He's going to appeal to him in the context of what he's written here in Colossians 3 to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, his heart and Onesimus' heart and the heart of the church to which they have been called in one body and to be thankful, to be thankful for what the Lord has done. He appeals to Philemon to let the word of Christ richly dwell in, in, in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And remember, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's, the, that's, that's what he is anticipating. That's the dynamics of that new creational lifestyle. And so ultimately, Philemon is just Colossians chapter 3 in action. That's really the application. Paul is saying, now you've got a real situation. We're going to see how the rubber meets the road. We're going to see whether or not these virtues are evident in the life, in your life, in Onesimus' life, in the life of the church. And so he exhorts him that way. And that's significant. The idea of these types of imperatives that we find are ultimately then plugged into our salvation. There are really no unplugged imperatives in the Bible. You're never told to do something but not given the ability to do it. And so here, Paul is reminding Philemon, reaching into the language that we find in Colossians chapter 3, to be mindful of the fact you are a redeemed person. He's praying in that way. We talked about that last week. He wants to have a demonstration of faith working through love. That's the point of verse 5. And verse 6 speaks of that very same idea. At the core of verse 6 is that picture of the faith that we have in Christ, which demonstrates itself on the external side of it in our love for others in the church and in the body. And so Paul is making application then of those very principles. And I think that's important for us to remember. People often will say, well, pastor, how does this look in real life? How do we live this out? What do we do? What is the application? Here's the application. 
Paul is anticipating that those things that he has taught and will teach are going to be demonstrated in real time in what would be an insanely difficult situation. Very challenging situation. But Paul expects to see the reality of the passages that we've looked at and those that are present here in Philemon evident in the life of Philemon. And I would anticipate that he would have called Philemon to do that even if perhaps Onesimus was not as contrite or um, as, as appealing as one would like him to be in order to merit one's forgiveness. I think Paul is appealing to Philemon regardless of what Onesimus does. This is what I expect you to do. We don't know necessarily what Onesimus does do. He does go back, so that speaks volumes. Going back to being a slave, his heart was certainly transformed and changed. But regardless of of that, we're not called to do these things because other people do them well for us or towards us. We're called to do them because who we are in Jesus Christ. And he expects the church to be an integral part of the process, and this is why the letter is written in the manner it is. Even though it's a personal letter, it's read to the church. And what we find, too, is that Paul reaches back, too, into this idea of knowledge. We find that language in verse 6, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Where did that come from? Where do these virtues come from? that enable us to do these types of difficult things with each other and for each other and towards each other. They come from our salvation, from our new creation. Remember, we just read 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive or understand the things of God. He won't do these things on a consistent, regular basis. May he be affable and kind at times? Sure. But we've been given the innate new creation ability to do them on a consistent, regular basis to God's glory. For the glory of Christ. Paul would remind us of that as well in Colossians chapter 3. You might as well just go ahead and flip back over there again. Continuing in chapter 3, Paul would say to the the issue of slaves beginning in verse 2, And again, Paul's writing this, understanding the dynamic that's going on within the church and the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He's anticipating Onesimus is going to go back to Philemon in this context. That's clearly in mind here. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than for men. So again, the motivation isn't to get something back from Philemon, but to do it as unto the Lord, to do it as a form of worship, as a form of gratitude, as a form of adoration, as a form of demonstrating in love that you are indeed a child of Christ. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for Philemon, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And that's significant. So all of these these things are are flowing through and are tied to this little letter of Philemon. And they play a very important part. If we isolate Philemon and look at it by itself without incorporating these passages from Colossians, we lose the significance of the meaning of the letter. We really lose the opportunity 
to examine our own hearts and our own life and our own mindset as it relates to the manner in which we conduct ourselves within the body with each other and how we can glorify the Lord in that process even in the most difficult of circumstances. And that certainly can be challenging. This situation between Philemon and Onesimus was certainly challenging. We don't have all of the details related to what transpired, but it was significant that he ran away. Running away as a slave was a, a big deal and could lead to one being killed or punished in some other way or sold into some other form of slavery that was worse than the state they had left, which often took place when they were captured. So ultimately here, Philemon stands for the proposition, apply what you've been taught. Apply what God has given to you. Apply what has been offered to you through your salvation and your regeneration, and it is even tied to your election. Colossians 3.12, as the elect, do these things. Who are beloved of God, do these things out of a heart of gratitude, knowing what Christ paid to redeem you. And so Paul is looking for a validation of Philemon's faith, one that he recognizes and commends, one that he looks to, one that he um, focuses on in these opening passages and is even part of his prayer. Verse 7 says, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. So Philemon has a reputation. Of course, he's opened up his home. The church is meeting in his home. He's made that sacrifice. And he goes on to note, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So Philemon was already a man of good repute. His testimony was solid. His testimony was fixed in that regard. And now he's challenging Philemon, go farther. Demonstrate even more to those around you and to me that you are a child of Christ by dealing with this incredibly difficult situation. Now, here's something that's significant that I find. He doesn't give, as we transition into verse 8, what he doesn't do is significant. He doesn't give Philemon a list of things to do. In the context of, of a legalistic, ritualistic approach to the solution, he wants Philemon to act out of love. Look what he says, verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, he could have written a letter to Philemon and said, Philemon, you're going to do A, B, and C. Philemon could have looked at the letter and gone, okay, I've done A, I've done B, I've done C. Done. It's over. I don't have to do any more. A, B, and C are finished. But no, love requires more. Love requires more than just checking the box. It requires moving beyond the box. It requires that we actually are engaged in the process of bringing about the reality of the virtues. You don't get to just say this. I'm, I'm kind. I have a heart of compassion. I am gentle. Saying it's one thing, doing it's altogether different. Paul is saying, I want you to exercise these virtues out of love. Remember, 
In verse 14 of Colossians 3, we, if you recall the sermons on that, love was the cloak that brought all the virtues together. The virtues are there, but love makes them work in a cohesive, unified way that demonstrates God's work in that person's life. Are you, are you seeing how big this is? So, so Philemon isn't just a little epistle that we gloss. Philemon requires us to reach back into all the doctrine and all the imperatives of Colossians and then to begin to make application with an understanding. Remember, Paul says, watch, watch what he does to Philemon in verse 6, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. What is that? It's the virtues. What are those virtues doing? They're at work. How are they at work? They're at work in love. Why love? Because according to 1 Corinthians 13, love softens the application and makes it sincere. It makes it genuine. It makes it heartfelt. This is the manner in which the church operates. We don't merely pay lip service to the virtues. We actually do the virtues. Why do I do the virtues? I do the virtues because of what Jesus Christ did for me. Was he not gentle with me? Did he not have a heart of compassion? Was he not humble for me? Did he not do those things for me in order to achieve for me what I could not achieve for myself? And think of how he was treated. Think of the contempt and the scorn that he bore for us. Yet he continued to demonstrate those things even in the face of that type of adversity. We're called to do the very same thing. But it's not legalism. Legalism is easier than righteousness. It's easy to check a box. It's easy to say, okay, I did, I, I got up, I went to church, I said hello to somebody, and I opened my Bible. I think I got it for the day. I've checked the boxes. But righteousness requires a heart that is in tune with the will of God and is exercising the virtues even in the face of what seems to be the most insurmountable issues, the most heart-wrenching things. Perhaps in your situation, you have a husband or a wife who has failed you miserably, who has done things that are detestable to you, who does not treat you in the manner that you think you ought to be. Maybe it's a business partner who isn't doing the things that you think they ought to do, a brother in Christ who isn't conducting business in the manner that you think ought to be done. Maybe it's some other personal family matter. Paul is saying in the application of Philemon, I expect you to act in love as you demonstrate the virtues that Jesus Christ has given to you. Don't pay mere lip service. I want you to do them. Philemon, I want you to do them. You have a reputation of being a man of God. I want you to live out the reality of that before the congregation, before Onesimus, and prove and demonstrate the reality of that. I know who you are. I know your reputation. Move on. Keep going. Isn't that amazing? 
He could have just said to Philemon, man, you're a great guy. You're the guy. You're the cat's meow. You've opened up your house. You've done all these things. Philemon, in his mind, think, I checked that box. I checked that box. I checked that box. I don't have to do anymore. All of a sudden, Onesimus shows up. You've got to be kidding me. Haven't I done enough, Paul? What more do you want of me? How much more do I have to do? You've got to be kidding me. You sent that guy back to me? Paul says to Philemon, I know your reputation. I have been praying for you. Paul, you know, it's interesting that Paul's praying for him already. It's, it's like Paul's praying as Onesimus is going back to Colossae. And, 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 the, and the thing, too, of how he is praying. He's not, he's not praying that Onesimus is freed. He's not praying that Philemon frees him. He's not praying that the culture changes so Onesimus is free and Philemon gets punished. He's not writing to Philemon or to Onesimus to join some social justice group or BLM or to, to offer up CRT as an answer to the whole problem. He's giving everybody the gospel. And he's saying to them, listen, you are new creation in Jesus Christ. You have been joined with Christ. You are in union with Christ. That's the whole theme of Colossians. Now I want you to show that it's real. Onesimus, you the slave, go back and be a better slave. Philemon, you the owner, I expect you to be a better owner, a gospel owner. I want you to demonstrate to Onesimus that you truly belong to Jesus Christ and that you're going to forgive him. You're going to welcome him back in as a brother. You're going to embrace him as I did, as my child. And you're going to demonstrate this in front of the entire congregation. And church, watch what happens. That doesn't happen in the church anymore. We get angry. We get bitter. We take positions. We take stands. We draw the lines. And it blows up. Because the virtues aren't there or they aren't being exercised. Paul is saying to Philemon, brother, this needs to be done in love. It needs to be done with compassion. I could tell you, as an apostle, do it. I could give you the checklist, do it. But he doesn't. Now, here's the other amazing thing about this. I want you to think about the other thing that's going on. In Colossae, in Colossae, in the church, what else is there? There's a false teacher. We forgot about him. There he is, standing in the corner, lurking in the shadows. What's he doing? He's giving everybody a to-do list. He's giving everybody a form of legalism. Now, it's interesting that Paul focuses in and spins on the love issue because that would have been counter to what the false teacher was doing. And remember what he said about what the false teacher was, what the worth of his teaching was. It was worthless for anything, spiritually speaking. So the false teacher's there in his house. I want you to think about that for a minute. This false teacher is in this congregation. He's a clever guy, according to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2. Silver-throated orator, quick thinker, good on his feet, the ability to persuade. Paul warns the church. He warns Philemon. Philemon's there. He read it. He would have understood that. And so what ends up happening now is that 
Philemon and Onesimus and the church are going to do something that stands in contrast to what the false teacher is saying to do. The false teacher is giving them all sorts of things to observe, don't touch, don't drink, don't eat, whatever. But he's not going to do that. He's going to say to them, listen, you are joined with Christ. I don't need you to go to some temple and have an experience. I don't need you to listen for some mystical words that are going to come down and give you instruction. I don't want you to have some aesthetic experience with an angel. I don't want you to have a whole list of things to do. I want you to act like you're in union with Jesus Christ. I want you to live out the reality of that in this congregation and with Philemon and with Onesimus. I think that's fascinating. I think that's compelling. Now, it's interesting, too, this issue of legalism and why Paul wouldn't go down the road of telling Philemon specifically what to do in terms of checking off the boxes. Because that would have been a big deal at that point in time, and I think today it's still a big deal. As I said, legalism is easier than righteousness because righteousness requires that we work through the difficult things with a new heart, applying you know, wisdom is knowledge and action, action, and so I'm taking what I've, and Paul prayed for the church that they would have wisdom back in Colossians 1, verse 9 and 10, and so he's, he's looking for this wisdom to be, this knowledge to be applied in the way that they act and the choices that they make. So he doesn't have to give them do's and don'ts. They ought to be able to take what they've been taught and make application of that with in the church itself and with the relationships with each other. Like I said before, checking boxes and be done for the day without being concerned about the inside, the heart issue. And this, of course, was the problem with the false teacher in Colossae. And of course, Paul was familiar with the rigors of legalism in light of who he had been before God saved him. As he recounts in Philippians, he was the cat's meow when it came to all of that. There was no one like Paul as far as self-righteousness goes. I mean, he was it. And let's not remember all the different nonsensical things that they did, but are we not as often as nonsensical as they were? Perhaps not to the extreme, but to the law, they had added 1,500 approximately other laws and rules to interpret the new laws and rules. A lawyer's dream. all the absurd type of things. Bleeding Pharisees, you ever heard of this? The bleeding Pharisees? So they took the exhortation about not looking upon a woman in a lustful way or the, to the, the, the commandment in that context uh, as it relates to sexual impurity and immorality. So they would walk with their heads down and so much so that they would bow down so much that they would run into buildings and pillars and, and injure themselves and bleed. They were called the bleeding Pharisees. They wouldn't even say the word God for a, for a fear of taking his name in vain. Even in worship, that's how absurd it became. You could only take 50 steps on the Sabbath. You couldn't cook. If you cut yourself, you couldn't put a bandage on it until the next day because that was work. You couldn't apply medicine to it because that was work. Ladies, you weren't allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and pluck it and that was work. 
depending on how many you had. <laughs> and who you were married to, I guess. I don't know. So, so Paul, Paul is familiar with all of that. And, and I believe that many in the church would have been familiar with that. The false teacher was familiar with that. He was bringing back in that form of a blended Gnosticism, Judaism, kind of a, a aesthetic angel worship nonsense. It was ridiculous. But the problem with it at its core was that it was legalistic. It wasn't being done in the context of heart regeneration, but rigorous application of a set of rules to prove to yourself that you're righteous, that you're good enough, that you can do it on your own, that you've got it, and just keep on doing it. When you get up tomorrow, just do it all again. Check the boxes. The next day, do it all again. The next day, do it all again. Next day, do it all again. Just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Keep on trucking like the bumper sticker says. That's exhausting. That's, that's it's unbelievably hard. Begs the question, how much is enough? When am I done? Do I ever get to break? take a break? Jesus' message, of course, in Matthew was, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. What were they tired of? Mowing the yard, plowing the garden, shoveling the snow? No. They were tired of trying to keep up with all the do's. The law says do, the gospel says done. And so for Paul and for Philemon, his anticipation is that it really is done. Now act like it's done. Communicate with Onesimus in a manner that demonstrates that you truly are a child of God. He is a child of God. He appeals to him later in the, later in the letter that he would, um, he's going to have him back forever. Verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. Philemon's looking, for, what? Can I just pat him on the back and send him on his way? No, Paul communicates in a manner that demonstrates that this is going to be something that is perpetual. How good is that? I guess we could say in the context of he now has a brother in Christ that is his forever. He doesn't just have a temporary slave, but he has someone that he will know for all of eternity, forever, forever. And so Paul, in verse 8, says... Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. I would rather you do it this way. Don't, don't do it for me. And he kind of goes on in that theme. I'm not going to tell you to do it because I'm an apostle and I could. I'm, I'm Paul. That's what that next phrase says, since I am such a person as Paul. So I'm Paul the apostle. I could play that card, or because I'm older, just be deferential to your elder and do it because I told you to do it, or if that doesn't work, I'm going to play the sympathy card and let you remind you that I'm in prison, so do it because I'm in prison. Mm -mm. Paul doesn't want that to happen. Paul doesn't want people doing things because he's the apostle saying so, or because he's older, or because he's suffering. He doesn't want that to be the reason. He wants Philemon to act in a manner that demonstrates the reality of a new creational way of thinking, acting, 
and living. That's dramatic. That's big. That's amazing. Isn't Philemon amazing? I hope so. I hope you think it is, because it is. It's truly quite remarkable, because it just reaches in. You say to yourself again, that, that I said, why Philemon? Why on earth? Think about it. Of all the historical documents that could have been preserved through the ages of mankind, why this letter? This short little letter to a friend. You've got it in your lap this morning in Beloit, Ohio, in January of 2024. Why on earth? You think God had a reason for it? A purpose behind it? Yes, of course he does. Now, our great privilege is to unpackage it, to know it, to understand it, and to certainly live out the reality of it in the context of the body life, the fellowship, the one another's within the church. How we love and interact with each other, what we do as the body of Christ, how we move through different dynamics and aspects of that body life. All of those things molded, fashioned, tempered by the virtues that we find in Colossians chapter 3. And that we find elsewhere. I mean, the fruits of the Spirit would be applicable. The seven virtues that Peter identifies in in 2 Peter chapter 1, where we are reminded there that we are partakers of the divine nature, which means that we are now equipped, empowered, spiritually speaking, to do these very things that we're called to do. And out of the fertile ground of our faith springs these virtues that we tend, that we feed, that we foster, that we fertilize and encourage to grow as a demonstration of the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. For me, Philemon is a rubber meets the road kind of text. It teases out the genuineness of one's faith, the reality of what salvation means and how it impacts the church, the body of Christ. You know, we aren't giving things by, it's just not a mistake that Philemon is in the Bible. There are a lot of reasons why books are in the Bible and why books are not in the Bible. And Philemon is here because of its gospel-focused, Christ-centered message that has clear instruction about how we live transformed lives as the redeemed of Christ. Philemon is Colossians chapter 3, 10 through 17 in action. In action. So, when we look at it that way, we have to ask ourselves the question in terms of our own lives in light of this. And gratefully, Jesus Christ did all these things for us. He did it perfectly. He was always perfectly compassionate and humble and gentle and kind and forgiving. And we're not. That's sad, but it's the case. And we get to go to him, and he will forgive us, and he is quick to do so. He is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sins to him in that context. That's the beauty of it all. And because we love Jesus Christ so much, we want to do that. We want to go to him with those things, and we want to talk to him about those things and lay those matters before him and talk to him about those things. And the Holy Spirit that works within us and intercedes on our behalf will communicate those things in a manner that you and I can't even understand or comprehend. 
that's how much the Lord loves us, and that's how much He is concerned. If you want to use that kind of human type of idea, God doesn't worry about us, but He is concerned about the reality of our faith being demonstrated in real time. In conclusion, I would draw your attention to Ephesians because Paul's exhortation in Ephesians is similar in chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 11, he says this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why? Why this? Why do this? Why? Well, verse 12. For the equipping, that is to make fit and to prepare fully. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, what? To the building up of the body of Christ. So preachers come along and their job is to proclaim the Word of God in such a way that the, equips, the saints are equipped, that they are made fit, that they are fully prepared to live out the reality of their faith in real time. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, Jesus Christ is the measuring rod, if you will. As a result, look what happens. When this happens, when these things are done, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Don't listen to the false teacher in Colossae. There's a good, that's, that's what's going on here. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, this idea of harmony, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? Love. There it is again. There it is again. So Paul is concerned about those things. And Philemon kind of drives the application of these passages in real time, in difficult situations, and calls the church to a level and higher holiness that would be contrary to what the world would understand or comprehend. The world does not act this way. It can't, won't, doesn't want to. But the church can and wants to and needs to. Philemon stands for that proposition. So we'll continue next week, Lord willing, in Philemon as we continue to unpackage, beginning with verse 10, Lord willing, um, as Paul further delineates and details some of the motivation behind why he's saying what he is to Philemon as it respects, as it, with regard to Onesimus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. We trust, Lord, that you would help us to make application of what we've heard today. Help us to be mindful of who we are in Jesus Christ. Help us to be um, uh, people who are uh, desiring to live out the realities of our salvation through the demonstration of these virtues cloaked in love that you've so graciously given to us. Help us, Lord, in that way. And forgive us for our failings in this respect, and help us to press on and to persevere and to keep us. We know that your church will prevail Help us to be faithful to our calling in and out of season, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.